welcome to the Stepping Out of Line podcast hosted by me, Leo Gibbons. This podcast examines those who have, in their own way, stood out from the crowd and stood by what they believe in. If you share my fascination with public figures who are not afraid to be themselves and follow their own path, this might just be the podcast for you. And now, to the preamble. I wanted to have a chat with Councillor Tom Jones for a couple of reasons. Firstly, I thought it'd be a laugh. I was correct on that. Tom is self-deprecating, funny and wickedly charming. I had a great time recording this episode with him. But secondly, and more importantly, Tom is a Conservative Party councillor who is willing to publicly point out his party's misdirection In particular, he's willing to speak some hard truths on why his party is struggling to win over younger voters. We spend a lot of this episode talking about that particular hole the Conservative Party have got themselves into, and like I knew he would, Tom doesn't pull his punches. There are moments of tension in this episode where I see a doorway to disagreement. Tom talks about his background and why he became a Conservative He talks powerfully about the weight he puts on personal responsibility and obligation when it comes to understanding and combating social ills. But I feel individuals, to a large extent, are shaped by our social environment. When I look to understand and combat social ills, I look to an active state to foster a healthier social environment while promoting individual freedom. In the end, I decide not to push at those areas of potentially hot disagreement. This was, after all, Tom's space and time to discuss his political philosophy and his motivations. You listeners can decide for yourselves whether that was the right approach or not, and I welcome your feedback. Each podcast is a learning experience for me. But anyway, less noise from me. Here is Councillor Tom Jones on the Stepping Out of Line podcast. Sorry, me again. This is likely to be my last podcast for a while. So before I press the pause button, I just want to say a quick thanks. If you ever listen to the end of my podcasts, you'll hear the voice of Will, who pops up for a little Patreon advert. That's not all Will does. He helps me edit all my shows and he's been a massive source of podcasting help and wisdom throughout both series. He gave me the confidence to go ahead and publish what I've done. So thanks, Will. This is a shout out. And if you want to find out more about Will's work, you can check him out on Twitter at at W Barber Taylor. That's at W Barbara Taylor. Enjoy. My guest today is Tom Jones, Conservative Party Councillor for Scotton and Lower Wensleydale. Tom, welcome to the show. Is the weather in the Yorkshire Dales just as miserable as it is in London today? Well, I'd like to say we're bathed in sunshine because the sun always shines on the righteous, but frankly, no, it's absolutely grim, as it often is up north, I'm told. Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad to hear 
it's pretty much been raining all day in London. There was a little peak of sunshine and it's, it's absolutely gone. Tom, my first question to start things off is you're 29. Yeah, relatively young, but in political terms, you're very young. But the reason why I wanted to bring up your age was because there is such a political divide in the country at the moment. Your age tells us a lot on how you're going to vote. Under current polling, we're looking at probably less than 10% of 30-year-olds voting Conservative at the next election. And obviously that's just voting. You're a Conservative Party member and an elected representative. Do you ever feel out of place at your local party association? Well, what a lovely phrase relatively young is. Faint praise, yet it thunders in my ears. <laughs> um, the truth is, yeah, I suppose it's, it's, I don't really feel out of place um, in my local party association, but that's because I've, I've become part of the wallpaper there. I've been involved for so long. So, you know, in speaking in terms of personally, I, I don't feel out of place at all. Also, because where I live in North Yorkshire is, you know, it's a relatively older community. So you get used to, to hanging around with, with um, people who are a lot older. But in terms of the um, kind of the membership of the Conservative Party, yes, it, it, it is significantly older even than the other parties. And I think this speaks to a, a kind of not just a generational, but a, a class problem, actually, because the Conservative Party is becoming more and more and more a part of, of the uh, the older generation um, who increasingly hold you know, larger amounts of accrued capital and accrued wealth in terms of home ownership. And that affects the policy platform that we stand on. And that's why we are so... <laughs> that's why we are so I can see you smiling you know what I'm going to say <laughs> that is why we are so beholden to not building houses even though it's clearly the wrong thing to do so that is kind of a part of the um, I suppose audience capture in a way but it also speaks to a, a, a broader problem in politics which is that party membership in general party politics is is becoming just a very, very, very middle-class pursuit. And I think this speaks a lot to, um, I was reading a book recently called Hollowing the Void by Peter Mayer, and he pointed out that a lot of these parties, you know, the Conservative Party um, has a very strong tradition of being a large-scale membership party, as does Labour. Most Western, not just British, but most Western political parties were founded as mass movement parties. And that has gradually, gradually, I think, as the kind of larger sphere of public life has eroded, their role in that has also eroded. And that creates a problem of how uh, people who aren't necessarily highly politically engaged, engage with politics. I mean, you and I, and probably a lot of the people listening to this, mm. um, are very highly engaged in politics, probably on Twitter. And the vast majority of people are not. But the, that vast majority of people, there is a very, very weak feedback loop to, um, to political parties. And that's, that's, a, that's across the board. Mm. No, I, I definitely think it's a 
growing issue in that as a political party member, you have a huge amount of power. You can decide who, if, for example, you're a member in a safe seat, you have a huge sway on deciding who the MP will be for that constituency, who is going to make up our parliament. As the membership of these once mass parties gets smaller and smaller, they probably start reflecting wider society less and less. And the mm-hmm. in, the interest and the outlook of the of the niche of the the hyper engaged starts having a bigger, bigger sway on kind of general policy and, and discourse and the makeup of of Parliament. I was yeah. just wondering when you were talking about not feeling out of place and about, you know, what some of your older comrades might say about house building in, in North Yorkshire, for example. Do you ever feel like you need to play the role of a the voice of the young people? So this is this is what young people are saying. I speak for young people. Do you ever have that kind of voices upon you? Um, Young man, what what are young people saying nowadays? What do the young people think? <laughs> How do you do, fellow kids? Yeah, that's um, I, I I think to a certain extent, I do. Uh, it is certainly not presumed, but I do take it upon myself to sit in uh, meetings and make the case for things that will benefit young people, and try and constantly point that out and. One of the big things that I was very, very committed to when I was lucky enough to get elected was I was absolutely determined we were going to have a year as, as county councillors and then we we're going to have a year, uh, four years as a unitary authority. And I was absolutely determined to get myself on the big strategic planning committee because that deals with the the, the big, most impactful planning applications and I thought if I don't get on that and argue for housing because it is desperately needed everywhere of all kinds um then there will be some I'm going to try and not be offensive about my um fellow councillors who I respect all a great deal um there will be a an old person who already has their house all their friends have their houses. None of them have bought a new house for the last 20 years. There will be somebody else, a NIMBY, making the case for no housing. Um, so you do have to put yourself forward. And you, I think this is one of the big problems with the NIMBY lobby is it's, it's really great, uh, you know, seeing them get vociferous on Twitter. And it's really fantastic. But you need a ground game of some kind. You need people... You know, I'm not saying, hmm. obviously, <laughs> I am model. I'm not putting myself forward. But you need people to go online and um, say they're in favour of planning applications because God knows Janet is. Um, you do need to convince councillors to go in favour hmm. of uh, of being in houses. You need to run that ground game because that's, that's where NIMBYism is winning. It would be interesting to hear your experience of representing an area of the country that couldn't be more different from from the area of the country that I represented. In that the colleagues that I spoke to 
broadly, particularly those under the age of 50. Um, so our councillors in London seem to, in general, be a bit younger. There's a real issue, actually, with councillors of the age um, when people start to settle down and have families. There's a hollowing out, have a lot of young councillors, and then there's a gap, and then they come back um, because childcare and the cost of living is just so, so extortionate. It's difficult to juggle being a councillor as well. But a lot of the younger councillors really were, in their instincts, quite yimby. Um, and there did seem to be an understanding that there, from central government, from regional government and local government, that new housing was needed. And it did always come yeah. down to, yes, but maybe not here. And <laughs> those debates were still had. Is that similar in North Yorkshire of, yes, broadly, in principle, we, we, under, we get it. We, we get that there is a huge issue in, in this country of intergenerational inequality. We do need to build more houses that will drive down price, house prices. We get it, but just not here. Or do you come across, why are you always talking about housing? So it's kind um, of odd. Um, I think uh, to speak to the bigger problem, I actually think this is a problem broadly across the country. I, I don't think it matters whether you're rural or whether you're urban, because the planning, the problem is the planning system. And the problem is with councils is the planning system is a huge amount of work that they have to legally conduct. But actually, apart from council tax, there is very, very little reason for a council, for a council as an institution to be in favour of building, right? To overcome entrenched nimbyism of councillors who are having their ear bent by the local community and things like that. And with the stripping away of housing targets, I mean, really, that was the last enforcement mechanism that we have for building houses. And, you know, to get rid of that was, frankly, it's just the mind boggles. That's how powerful the NIMBY lobby is. But equally, you know, we shouldn't have bent to that. I think one of the big things that we need to do is have a much, much stronger enforcement mechanism and potentially look at um, restricting funding to councils that don't build enough and gearing the funding towards councils that do build enough. One of the disappointing things about my authority is it is generally older. Um, that's to be expected, I think, in North Yorkshire, given they're all councillors. Um, I think there are two of us under 30, I think three of us under 40 and this is out of how many 90 <laughs> so it's it's not great so i think there is a it's like a connections problem right those people all hang around with people who also own their own homes and they are not necessarily aware of intergenerational disparity as a concept unless they have kids mm. um so it it is it is a big issue. I mean, I'm I'm quite disappointed by the lack of fire that I've heard in, in council chambers, you know, in favour of building homes. Whenever I've had a conversation about housing, particularly with the kind of to be expected NIMBY parties, everything is couched in NIMBY terms. 
They accept that maybe there's a need for housing, maybe, possibly, yeah, maybe, but we need to make sure. And then they immediately give themselves an give themselves an opt-out. But we need to make sure it's the right housing. We need to make sure it's in the right places. And and all that is just it's it's all a cop out. It's all getting ready for people to take the easy way and do the wrong thing, which is campaigning against housing instead of accepting that building houses is a moral and economic necessity. Not only are they in their own kind of bubbles or echo chambers, but actually when it comes to being a local councillor, really the individuals that will email you, that will phone you, not always. Um, often I found with my advice surgeries that were in person, there were individuals that were, sometimes they'd think I was a local MP. <laughs> and it was a, or like, it was- Always a nice ego boost. Yeah, I was like, oh, hey, it was a bit awkward when you're like, I'm really not very important and you think because I'm <laughs> acting like I am. Um, and but those who would come in, in person to the advice surgery often had you know, quite substantial casework and were in great difficulties, nearly always housing related, actually. Um, we're in temporary accommodation or yeah. overcrowding for, for in social housing for a long, long time. Um, but usually most of your contact would be from very, very engaged um, residents mm. who were of a certain class background um, and relatively affluent and comfortable. My ward was very mixed, but I mainly heard from one type of type of residents. And I imagine that's the same all around the country. Turnout in local elections is relatively low. You'll be hearing from certain type of voices. Um, so it's kind of sometimes difficult to you know get those squeezed younger people and their voices heard so it makes kind of your role extra important and i wouldn't be surprised if you thought actually i've got to play the token young person and shout about intergenerational inequality all the time yeah and i and i think it's i think one of the big things that i often pull out in 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 conversations about um about housing is that I can't afford a house in my division because I can't afford to live there. I mean, it's so Lower Wensadale is a lot of really, really lovely, gorgeous villages um, just outside the National Park. Lots of really small villages that obviously haven't built any houses for a long, 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 long time, most of them. And then that stretches up to include quite a large part of, of uh, Catrick Garrison. But really, I, I can't afford to live in in my division, because I, I can't afford any of the houses that, that would come up in the, or most of the houses that would come up in the villages. And most of the garrison is is military housing. Mm. So, uh, and I, so I actually grew up in Munsterdale and I represent a couple of my friends who were lucky enough to buy a house there, who had to buy an absolutely derelict house and have had to live in it for now two to three years of doing all the work themselves because it's the only way they can make it make it work and they were incredibly lucky to buy the house they did they had to send a letter to the owner saying you know we're from around here we'd love to live here we'd love to buy this house but we can't give you any more money and it was only through the the seller's goodwill that they managed to get it but all the people i went to school with have all moved away or they're lucky enough to be farmers who are, you know, living in a in a tired house. Um, mm. Anybody who wanted to follow a, a 
an economic opportunity not tied essentially to a family business has by and large had to move away. So I don't really represent any young people, to be quite honest with you, because they can't afford to live around here. Hmm. It, it, it reminds me of that story of a village um, somewhere in rural England that had not built any houses for decades and decades and decades because there was obviously great opposition to any house building. And then there was a campaign to save the local school from closure. That was one of ours. Yeah, oh, really? Yeah. No way. Oh. So I did, uh, I, I remember this coming up. So um, a lot of the district councillors campaigned against housing again and again and again. It was somewhere like Hutton Rug Rugby, I think somewhere like that. We hate closing schools, absolutely hate it. Nobody wants to close a school, but as and when appropriate, you do have to, to close them. And uh, huge campaign to keep this school going. And I, I did say to the councillor at the time, um, who did not take it particularly well, I did say, what is an appropriate amount of public money to spend on a school with no students? <laughs> because <laughs> you built houses... You know, they, they, it, it would still be open. It is genuinely that simple. Um, but people don't see housing. Politicians don't see houses by and large. They see campaigning opportunities. So either you're in favour of housing and, you know, if you're running up to an election, you will have somebody against housing. If you're against housing, the other person will just be even more against housing. You know, yes. I, and I do think a lot of this does need to be, I do think we need to move to a zonal system on planning because actually I don't think I should have the power to stop mm. a development. I think there is absolutely mm. no way for a councillor like me who has an, a, a majority of, let's say, a few hundred, I can't remember how many votes I got, enough to win. Um yeah, who cares? Um, <laughs> there is absolutely no way that I, as a local councillor, with a few hundred votes in my back pocket, should be able to campaign against housing that this country desperately needs. Because I'm not Moses descending from Mount Sinai with tablets of stone saying, thou shalt build no more housing. Right. I'm just I'm just some some guy. It, it's so it's so rare to hear a a councillor say, you know, take this power away from me. Because and I completely understand why you why you say so, but it's you know, with the kind of hollowing out of local councils over years of austerity, really when you sit around a council chamber and you know, what what we have certain uh, statutory funding um, that, you know, certain um, things that we absolutely you know, have to deliver. And beyond that, where, where can we actually make a difference as councillors? And one obvious area is in planning and being on a committee and using your power of discretion to, to turn down policy compliant housing applications and I completely understand why councillors would be up in arms with losing those powers. I do think there's still a role to play in, for example, a zonal system in 
councillors and local authorities helping draft policies but once those planning policies once those zoning policies are set yes i agree you know they are concrete you can build this here if it's like this these are the policies and it will make building far far easier it must sometimes frustrate you as you said with your association might have a different a different opinion on these matters than yourself how often do you find yourself pulling your hairs out at colleagues in the Tory party basically what I'm getting at do you ever feel like is this the party for me and I'd love to hear about your story of how you became a conservative or whether you were born a conservative and then had this realization later on that you were one and you wanted to join the Tory party and become a local representative and a party activist um and do you ever do you ever waver was I born a Tory looking back at it probably right because I was born <laughs> in a really 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 nice village on the outskirts of Derby and I went to the big local private school um and then I came up to Yorkshire and I went to the private school and you know I lived in the middle of the of nowhere it's like living in the 1950s where I grew up <laughs> everybody drives a Land Rover you're either a farmer or a gamekeeper it's like Nigel Farage's paradise <laughs> but um I think looking back on it I was probably always destined to become a Tory but um you know for a while I think I had that maybe a year or so I had a rebellious phase that everybody goes through of um you know I, I found a left-wing friend and he introduced me to Erica Badu and the ragged trousered philanthropists <laughs> and so for a year that's you know that's kind of where I was at and then I went to I remember when I decided to abandon the pretense which was I went to uh, Cuba on holiday and mm -hmm. I started at uh, University of Hull and those two experiences showed me what years of socialist control can do to a place <laughs> and that's when I decided it wasn't for me. <laughs> did, you, did you ever poke your head into the University Labour Society and and see what it was like. Or by that point, were you? I'm going to join the five others in the University Conservative Society. Yes. Yeah. Basically, I just I didn't even engage at that point. I think I I went in there going right. Well, that was a nice phase, um, but it'd be nice to move on, wouldn't it? So, and then I went in and joined the University Shooting Society. So you know, I was never that committed. Clearly. <laughs> And I'm just wondering if um, if most of your you know your friends from from school or or back home would you say they have now conservative voters or would you say they're split fifty fifty or I think my um my friends from school like most people's friends from school by and large I think are probably politically um, disengaged mm. um I think my friends from from university by and large are culturally conservative voters or hereditary conservative voters but obviously you know your university experience is not is not particularly reflective it's an interesting time to be young and involved in politics because you do feel like there is the potential of an opportunity with oh god i, I hope nobody hears this um ccht if you're listening i don't mean it um <laughs> 
I think if you're young and looking at the Labour Party, you feel like they're saying some they have the potential to to really capture your vote really easily. And they keep hinting at it. They keep showing a little bit of leg, a little bit of ankle and they're never quite going the whole hog. And I am not. Well, I, I understand why, but I think it's the wrong decision. I, I think, um, yes, I, I almost assume that they they kind of know that young voters are in the bag culturally. And I guess that's the almost the kind of elephant in the room is that I know a lot of individuals who, you know, in a different era, they would kind of be Cameroonian. Cameroonian? Would that, you know, how would a, you know, yeah. Cameron Tories, whatever their, their nickname is, a liberal Tory. And they're just very annoyed about not being able to buy a flat in Pimlico like their yeah. kind of a, a dad did um, back in the day. And and so they're kind of flirting with Labour and they might, they'll probably vote Labour next election. But there is this kind of cultural element, being liberal and progressive and young young people in general have that that vibe and they they care about social issues and and labor is on that side and almost a vibe and we i think we've talked on twitter together about the kind of vibe based politics and i just wanted to kind of pick into your kind of early feelings of i'm i'm a conservative and what that what that means to you and on a kind of more cultural level less kind of on the bread and butter kind of economics yeah i suppose if i could sum it up in a phrase which of course i can because i'm a glib bastard <laughs> um i would i would summarize it as i want tomorrow to be more like today and today to be more like yesterday so yeah i suppose i suppose i've got a, a slightly unusual grounding that my mother is a high level child protection social worker so I've always been quite kind of involved in um not involved in but concerned with social issues but the social issues in terms of not the kind of language of rights but 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 the language of responsibilities so I think a lot of our discourse around social issues is framed in terms of rights and i think a lot of that has to do with the civil rights campaign which is basically the, the you know it's is the perfect when you look back at its history it's the perfect political campaign because you are against you know a completely unjust system that basically nobody normal can possibly defend and you are unimpeachably morally right and we i think couch a lot of our language and this is because a lot of this the modern rights discourse is, is derived from america we we derive a lot of our language about rights and that suits kind of a, a more progressive bent where it's you know it's an increase in my right to do this my right to do that and I think one of the reasons that I'm a conservative is because I look more at the responsibilities and I look more at the kind of impact that those that those rights can have. So, for instance, you know, we've we've lessened the importance of marriage as a social institution. People talk about, for instance, the rights of um, people to 
you know, do more drugs and things like that and legalise drugs. And I, I think I will probably always be against that because I remember one day when, when I was very young, I was about six, my mother brought home a little book that she had bought from work. It was a, what I can only describe as a sales catalogue for the kids that she got up for adoption. And I can still, I can still feel the kind of glossy pages as I was flicking through them with her. And I looked at these pictures of the kids and they were the same age as me. They were, you know, brothers and sisters. And I remember one of them, picture of brothers and sisters saying, we'd like to keep these two together if we possibly can. And I just think about the impact that we, that some of these rights-based discourses have. I, I remember that and I remember the impact that stuff like that can have. And I think that's why I'm a conservative because the facts of life are conservative. More stable families would mean that binder, that leaflet gets a few less pages every year. Yeah. And I think that's the right thing to do. Mm. I do think that there is, there's some truth in, so if you, if you take, for example, the kind of liberalization around divorce and you look at new cultural attitudes to um, cohabiting and, and separation, I do think there is an evidence base that actually a two-parent household is a really positive thing for children and actually the outcomes are more likely to be um, better outcomes. It does feel a slightly com complicated minefield because you know that when talking about it, you're very conscious that individuals who have been brought up in single parent households and had very positive experiences feel like a, it's an attack when when these issues yeah get up. but my mum's a, a social worker as well and and she would she would say the same and she would say that actually you know taking children to care would be the absolute last resort and mm. it is you're always trying to keep as as much as you can and that your job is there as as a support function and a, a kind of protective force to uh, keep children safe and keep families together. And I agree that in society that there is a kind of a balancing act of rights and responsibilities and freedom as well as responsibility and, and individuals, you know, if everyone acted completely free without any societal obligations, it would cause absolute chaos. I suppose this is why I'm a kind of more post-liberal type conservative, although I'm not really sure what that label means, to be honest. But people have used it about me, so I've just gone with it. People far more intelligent than I. But policy is like a... Uh, it's like one of those old-fashioned scales, you know, where you can stack up the weights on either side. And for the last, I think, 50 years, we have been stacking the weights on rights, 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 rights. But that has costs for responsibility. And I think it has costs for the collective. And I think those costs 
for me are now kind of beginning more than beginning to outweigh the benefits of conducting our politics as if personal freedom, personal um, liberality is the only point of politics. That is how we conduct our politics. That's how politicians of both parties, uh, that's how all politicians conduct their politics. But I think we need to rebalance away from that, if I'm being honest. But having followed you on Twitter for some while and followed your your writing i can only apologize no i keep keep it keep the hot takes coming please um but actually you don't strike me as someone who loves really getting stuck in in the culture wars and and woke bashing you're someone who's going to yes actually i am you know i see myself as someone post-liberal quite socially conservative certainly for what is the perception of people my age, but actually we might get on yeah. to talk about this. Social media, particularly Twitter, is a massive bit of a bubble and actually <laughs> real folk out there are probably a lot more social socially conservative than we than we often think. But you don't strike me as someone who who really feels that the kind of future of conservatism is just raging about woke things you probably have a slightly nuanced opinion on saying actually some of it um some attitudes that are quickly changing society aren't a positive but it doesn't seem to be something that you think needs to be at the forefront of absolute forefront of modern conservatism you you seem to talk about economics and housing crisis and infrastructure just as much as you you talk about i don't know transgender issues and ULEZ and is that ULEZ that woke? ULEZ is now woke but anyway. Yeah so no I don't um, well I definitely talk about housing and economics a lot more than I talk about transgenderism or ULEZ because (laughs) I've never talked about transgenderism or ULEZ because I think one of the great mistakes that anybody can make in 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 politics insofar as I am in politics Mm. I think one of the great mistakes you can um, have, you can make, is to have an opinion on everything and feel like you have to have an opinion. The transgenderism debate is so far down the road, and I have missed the bandwagon so much that I basically, I, I know roughly what's going on, but I do not feel I could give you an informed opinion. You, Les, I don't particularly have an opinion about you les because i don't need to because i don't live in the south <laughs> that was me maybe even that was me being maybe slightly facetious about the thing it now <laughs> then, the forefront of the woke vanguard sadiq khan and yeah. you les um but you know you know uh, yeah i'm trying to think of the other day critical race but no i so i i do you're right. I think I, I think I do have a, a, a kind of nuanced view, which is I do think we need to fight the culture war. Mm-hmm. And I think like every war, you, you need to fight it and win it. I think the big mistake we have been doing is fighting uh, as conservatives. I think we have been fighting a cultural air war of basically like we have government ministers going on, you know, Mike Graham segment, you know, proclaiming the war on woke. And then we are giving all of the work institutions massive amounts of government funding. And we don't seem to be able to link the ends and the means very well. 
So I find that incredibly frustrating because I think if you're going to fight the culture war, fight it to win. And some of the, the Tories kind of missteps on these issues in that when, when they have gone for institutions, they've gone for like the National Trust. Everyone loves the National Trust, you know, and they don't yeah. assume that no, no one's perception of the National Trust is, you know, woke warriors. It's the nice townhouses that you go on a bank holiday. It's like there must be frustration actually on your part of just misfiring. So I, I've written about this before, and I think one of the big worries I have is that if we take a real shelling, sorry, yes, if, I won't say when, if we take a shelling at the next election, what I'm worried about is what I call the Americanization of the right, which, you know, we've been told that the right is going to Americanize forever. But I think one of the things that the right did in America was after Donald Trump, the Republicans, a bit like the Tories, had this incredible ability. Conservatism, Inc., as it is over there, has this incredible ability to just kind of repackage and remould itself and broadly do the things it's always done and not really change its policy platform. So you had people like, for instance, Charlie Kirk, Ben Shapiro, and a lot of the um, down-ballot candidates, you know, midterm candidates, rebranded as... MAGA Republicans and basically did not change their platform at all. Hmm. That's interesting. So they kept a very kind of conventional Republican platform. And because they kept that Republican platform, but also because they didn't really understand the appeal of Donald Trump or the MAGA agenda, because they don't really mix in those in those in those circles they have continued to mix in conservative ink circles they have continued to think what conservatism conservative ink thinks um they basically have started talking to a caricature of a of a mega voter and so that's why ben shapiro now does 45 minute videos where he destroys barbie <laughs> um which you know is really, really, really low status. And what I'm worried about is that if we take a shelling at the next election, we now have GB News and we, you know, we have a, a right-wing ecosystem, which is not as strong as it could be, but is is pretty good. Um, we have the potential for conservatism in Britain to go along those lines of talking to a caricature of a voter about issues that are completely unconnected, that have no coherent narrative between them, and which actually I think um, Richard Tice is already doing. Richard Tice has a very, very, very conventional, very conventional 1980s conservative platform. And he has no idea, he has no, he does not have the common touch of Nigel Farage. He doesn't really understand the electorate he's trying to appeal to, which is why they've never got above 10% in, in any poll. Mm. So what he does is just picks up little woke news story snippets and does little bits on them and has no way to thread the narrative together. And that's a really dangerous game to play in politics because 
stories are how we relate to each other and stories are how you build up a picture and if you're not telling a story if you if you haven't got a narrative in electoral politics you're not going to get anywhere Mm. the way that or the way that i fear personally this could play out is kind of two ways i kind of see there's the right doing what they're currently doing which just seems to be a general attitude of of the liberal freaks have gone too far this time <laughs> you know left, lost their marbles yeah it's just like they've gone bananas later there's just too there's too many blue fringes and it's too much and we're just and i think that will have a certain small currency with, with yeah, some yeah, voters yeah. but actually if you look at environmental policy and one of the challenges now that if you in any way try and discourage with a with a stick of of taxes or with fines in using gas boilers or using diesel vehicles um it's going to punish those on low incomes who spend relatively more of their income on fuel it's going to punish those individuals more it's naturally going to be regressive um a lot of green policies and we try and change consumer behavior the narrative of the liberal green elites imposing green policies and taxes and burdens on the average joe is an incredibly powerful narrative and something you can really see becoming a partisan issue. I picked up on that issue particularly because from what I can see from your writing, you know, you know that we need to save the planet and actually there's a lot of opportunities in green infrastructure this country do you have any fears about where the conservative party might might be turning on environmental policy or do you think actually there is a way to do environmentalism in a conservative way that protects those people on kind of lower incomes who do need their diesel vehicles and their gas boilers for example so so this is this is one of the problems with the kind of if we get shelled and we start doing the republican thing like we will start talking about woke green jobs instead of actually coming up with a coherent environmental policy and the, the line that we need to walk down is we need to we need to yeah reduce emissions but I think a lot of the things about, you know, ULES is a great example of this. I think what people are now saying is is basically that they are really happy with the progress, you know, we've made on environmental policies. You know, it's 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 popular um, electorally. That's the evidence for that. But there comes. Again, politics is all about trade-offs. And I think ULES points to an idea that there is a growing number of people who are not prepared to have a trade-off in their living standards against a further reduction in emissions. Mm. And actually, 
I think that's fair enough because we are not taking the easy wins. Mm. We are really not. Uh, you know, people are talking about, well, why don't we have like solar panels on houses? Why don't we reform planning so that we can build massive solar farms? Wouldn't that be a lot easier? Why don't we reform planning so that we can actually build onshore wind? Mm -hmm. Why don't we reform planning so that we can build the new nuclear that we absolutely desperately need mm. so that we can sustain electric vehicles, so that we can sustain uh, heat pumps? Because we need to protect people's living standards, right? What we are doing is uh, uh, the political system is not paying enough interest to the impact on people's living standards that the green agenda has. And that is really frustrating because, again, the winds out there are super, super easy. If you want a new engineering base, like Siemens is, is based in, has got, has got a massive um, setup in Hull. Make it easier for them to build stuff uh, put stuff up domestically to spur the local market, and then they can start exporting stuff from Hull, which will be great for Hull. It's great for the economy. It's great for the environment. But we, you know, there is a coming energy crunch in 2030. And I think off the top of my head, I think the peak, peak energy shortfall is going to be 65 gigawatts, which I think, again, off the top of my head, I have written this somewhere. It's somewhere around these figures. I think is 27 Henkley Point Cs. And we have to build that in, I think, uh, is it 2030 or 2035? We have to build it in 12 years. Well, it's taken us 13 years and we haven't built one Henkley Point C yet. Mm. So, you know, I just, yeah, the, the devolving into the kind of green stuff, uh, the war on woke, does really worry me because this is about protecting the living standards of your citizens. And if you're not in the business of protecting the living standards of your citizens, then your state has no legitimate sovereignty. And frankly, what are you doing in politics? Mm -hmm. You have to play that trade-off and we are, we are not doing the trade-off. I do think there is actually a, com a common ground in that broadly speaking when it comes to developing green infrastructure be it solar farm you know the idea that you know we could be the saudi arabia of wind you know, <laughs> um, which is a bit of a tongue twister a eh? the saudi arabia of wind is quite popular with voters in general and actually broadly speaking the green agenda is is popular across the board it's, it's more popular, actually, if you um, phrase it as an energy independence question. Yes. yes. So um, there has been a lot. Of, there was some YouGov polling recently that said, you know, are you would you be in favour of a small modular nuclear reactor? Uh, I think it was like 50 miles from your house. Overwhelmingly, no. What about a wind farm? It, you know, it's broadly kind of 50-50. You phrase it differently as a question about to reduce uh, dependence on Russian oil and gas or foreign oil and gas, the numbers spike. So we have a fantastic opportunity now to start overcoming some of the NIMBY concerns about building green infrastructure. And again, 
we're not taking them. Yes, because because currently, as you say, while onshore wind farms might be broadly popular, once they you attempt to plonk them down somewhere along with solar farms, locals get an up and up. Yes. And actually, all the framing around it is beauty spots. <laughs> It's always a beauty spot everywhere. Um, <laughs> is is being is being absolutely destroyed. England's green. A historic dogging area. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, just like um, some kind of shrubbery by the M4, a famous beauty spot. You know, this green and pleasant land. Um, no offense to the M4 corridor, um, but it's <laughs> just uh, I I do think that yeah, there is a danger that you know. And there's always going to be partisanship. There's always going to be conservatives and Labour finding a wedge issue and mm. kind of just hammering at it. But things going a little bit too far and there being, as you say, we don't want these woke green jobs. <laughs> we don't want we don't oh, we don't want these uh, new job opportunities for the for the northeast or wind farms. We want to get back to digging coal. If you phrase green jobs as like planning, you know, we're going to drop um, loads of, we're going to change the planning regulations and make it a lot easier to build green infrastructure and you let the free market at it, I think most conservatives would be in favour of that. If you phrase it as Ed Miliband's green jobs, we're going to think, well, that's just going to be government employees with clipboards. Yes. Yeah. I, I, on the number of great crested newts where there should be a solar farm. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I see what you mean. Segwaying to getting off the woke policy and, and green policy and just talking about general approaches to politics. I've been quite struck at just how in your demeanor, how candid and authentic that you come across on social media. Got a sense of humor, which I think actually is just dangerous, purely dangerous in politics. You shouldn't have a sense of humor or if you do, you should be able to put it in a box, lock it up, and only with close friends when everyone's phone is away that you can bring it back out again. <laughs> but actually on, on Twitter, you're quite happy to to have a laugh, be yourself, and show people that you have interests outside of politics. When you became a councillor, was that something intentional? Were you actually, I'm just going to kind of be myself on social media or... Or actually, am I wrong? Do you do you finally curate your your material and every every post that you make? <laughs> no. Well, I'll look at my Twitter feed will tell you that I do not carefully curate, <laughs> curate my tweets. Um, yeah, I think Ma Margaret Thatcher has a great quote. Said, uh, "If you have to have, if you have to use any tricks to get the electorate to vote for me, don't use them. Uh, if they don't want me, it won't work." Mm. So it's. <laughs> There's no point going in and conducting myself like a member of parliament because I'm not a member of parliament. I'm a, I'm a councillor. You know, I think, as for being honest, I can't do anything else because one of the things about being a councillor is it buys you a lot of political freedom, right? So I am not important enough to the Conservative Party, frankly, for them to bother constraining what I, what I say. Mm. And so that's how I managed to run a nice little sideline in op-eds that basically say, I think conservatives have got this wrong, or I think we should be doing something other than, than what we're planning to do. So I think that kind of frees you up. And that's, I think that's also being part of a younger political generation that has 
is you know less established you know has less skin in the game um you can kind of go away and look at new ideas and think oh well uh, i know we tried this 13 years ago but you know 13 years ago i was 16 (laughs) so maybe let's go back and, and look at that and see how it's played out you know i wrote a big piece recently about austerity because when austerity came in I was 17. So it's not like I'm, you know, it's not like I'm Michael Gove and I have to say austerity was definitely great and we made no mistakes because I was a minister at the time. I was a 17-year-old kid mm. um, and I was just as professional then as I am now. <laughs> well, it is, personally, I, I think it's it's very refreshing. You know, I haven't seen you do one of those kind of tweets, you know. It's been great picking up a coffee at Chambers Coffee Bar. You know, the best brew in North Yorkshire is found here. Only the conservatives will stand by small businesses. You know, just like, mm-hmm. like straight yeah. just kind of offers script and you just kind of, it, when I see those tweets from local councillors or MPs, I'm just like, one, I might have a day off, <laughs> just enjoy the coffee. And, yeah. and two, just like, you don't actually mean that to you. You much prefer the coffee shop down the road, the chain or whatever, you know, um, it's, it just, you know, I, I, maybe, maybe I'm overly sensitive to this, uh, inauthenticity from politicians, but I, I do feel like there is more of an appetite. You know, the thing they always said about Jeremy Corbyn, like you know, he comes across as authentic and that's what part of his appeal as a younger generation, I guess we also grew up with social media. Mm-hmm. As a society, we've kind of got to get used to, we grew up on social media. All our past idiotic comments are there to be found and seen. Yeah. People make mistakes and we need to kind of be more more open about that. So this is who I am. What you see is what you get. And you were saying that actually, you know, you're in that kind of level as a politician where there's a certain freedom because there's not the weight of the parliamentary whips or the scrutiny that an MP would get. Mm-hmm. But do you ever get any pushback from your council colleagues, you know, where you've you've tweeted something that may be critical of National Conservative Party policy and or or you've made a you've made a joke that was a, a little bit too banterous? And do you I guess you say so you I know you are you are the whip or one of the whips or on the on the council. Yeah. So it's your job to tell yourself off. Um but do you, Yeah, I am the chief whip. Yeah. <laughs> you, that's perfect. That's how you've done it. You've got yourself in that position where you ironic but, given my chronic lack of party discipline. But do you do you um uh yeah, do you ever have those kind of chats? Would that be giving would that be giving too too much away to admit that on a podcast if you if you do get that from colleagues? But it would just it would be it would be interesting because I think your your attitude is is different to a lot of politicians who even if they're local councillors view it very very professionally in in that you know and I say that probably in a in a professionally in inverted commas. I mean I suppose my my because of the average age of my colleagues on the council chamber, not very many follow me on Twitter <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> For which I am largely great. You just have to fax them your hot takes. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, but I know, you know, previously they have, you know, my articles have, have popped up in, um, you know, that a leader has had a conversation with me about some of my articles because they were about 
North Yorkshire, but I mean, the articles are very different because I was in favour of something that we did and I just thought it was very interesting that I'd written about it. I mean, in terms of kind of disagreement with colleagues, not really, not in terms of kind of what I'm tweeting, um, because it's nothing I won't say to their to their faces. Mm. I'm quite open about my opinions that, you know, we shouldn't have responsibility for planning because we're not important enough and it's too bureaucratic. But I think a lot of the kind of things I've pointed out, particularly about local government, actually I've been slightly surprised by the number of people who broadly agree. So, you know, I don't tweet often about um, local government funding structures because I find it doesn't go very well <laughs> funnily enough but you know I, yeah I, I you know I might write about um local government funding structure or tweet about them you know I might tweet about how daft a particular policy is or obviously housing and I do find that generally I get a surprising amount of very kind of quiet quiet agreement I mean, in terms of meetings, to be honest, I don't speak that much, usually because there's somebody better informed because they are retired and they have read the pa- papers front to cover, mm. whereas I might have only skim read them, but definitely front to cover, any of my constituents. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, yeah. In, in terms of coming back to Brightney, not a lot, actually. I'm, I'm, I'm quite pleased and I've got, um, you know, it's kind of some of my public appearances I've had people you know MPs might message me and say actually I really agreed with that oh, you're wow. completely right or you know you, you might get a, a spad um agreeing with you in you know private and then equally you'll get somebody quote tweeting you telling you what a complete arse <laughs> that's politics it'd probably be the same it'd be yeah. the same individual wouldn't it uh, yeah probably. <laughs> um do you have any ambitions to take politics further because then actually as the scrutiny kind of lens intensifies because you've been so open and you you have a lot to say and you're, you're happy to write around lots of topics is there ever a fear that well if i you know if i was to ever run for parliament i would I'd start get deleting. <laughs> I'd, start, I'd get one of those AI tools to wipe everything. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't want to go any further. But, you know, it might might reconsider in twenty or thirty years' time, but at the minute, I've so I've been a Conservative Party agent. I've got some of my um, really close friends are MPs. It looks absolutely dreadful. Yeah, it looks a horrible job. You have to give up your entire life. to become an MP and you're under I've been out drinking with MPs you know and they are being whispered about as they walk into the bars of their constituency Mm. you know so it's you know if you're going to go and get drunk you have to do it at home which sounds dreadful although I do it all the time you know you have to give up your entire life for 80 grand a year and in terms of retracting my hot takes I I'm not going to do it because um, I think it's important that you hold your own party's feet to the fire when they make make a mistake. And frankly, even if I did want to crack a parliament, 
I'm not sure CCHQ would let me. I'm genuinely not sure I would get particularly far mm. because, you know, with all due respect, I would be a reputational risk <laughs> because I'm, I might say something. Yeah. <laughs> we can't, we can't zip his mouth shut. He, you wouldn't be one of those individuals at a by-election that they can just hide in a, you know, the Tory candidate is just hiding in a cupboard for the whole short yeah. campaign. <laughs> you know, you not doing yeah. any interviews. Um, they wouldn't be able to kind of chain you down like that. I did have a you know a few comments occasionally from from friends and, and colleagues saying, you know, uh, this tweet, this is this is probably for the the alt account, for the, the anonymous account. Um, yeah. And when I was a councillor, I was really kind of you know strong on. No, I almost just felt it was wrong. You know, if I was an elected representative, people should know what I'm saying publicly. Privately, it's a different matter. We all have our own kind of private lives, but publicly, what I what I'm saying, what my opinions are, you know, I should that should be known. I should be held accountable. A few people brought that up after a councillor in Southwark, neighbouring borough, got found out for having a, an alt account, right? And the alt account was. Southwark Yimby, and he's even got the same name as me, and he kind of looks like me. It was freaky. It was freaky. <laughs> and everyone just like people come up to me. It's like, is that was that you? And I was like, no, it wasn't me. It was just my my sort of twin next door. But anyway, yeah, it's a side, side issue. Final quick question: How do you think the election is going to go next year? Well, at the minute, we are polled to get less than half of our worst election performance. Sorry, our worst election performance so far. <laughs> Obviously, it's not going to be that bad. I think last time I checked the MRP, and this was a long time ago, it was something like 84. It is It is not going to be that bad. Um, I think inflation will get better. There has already been a lot of rallying around the flag, although it is too little too late. Mm. And I think some of the policies will have an effect, but we are going to lose. Yeah. I don't think it's going to be the absolute Blair-like landslide that that people seem to be predicting. But yeah. Yes. To be honest, that's how I anticipate things are going to be. I do think there is probably going to be some voters coming home to the Conservatives. I think actually it will be this election, particularly. It's about the economy and how that how the economy is doing next year will make a huge difference. I do think it might be a particularly spicy and a nasty uh, election campaign. I, I see it coming, but hopefully we can we can still stay friends. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I think I'm going to be disappointed by is um, I've actually known Rishi, name drop. Um, I've actually known Rishi since before he became an MP. For you, he's just Rishi down the road. To me, he's just some guy. <laughs> in fact, I was the first person he ever spoke to in the constituency. This is this is my claim to fame. I was at the time it was William Hague's office, and um, my first office job. I was interning there, and I remember answering the phone. Some voice saying, "Hi, I'd like to speak to somebody about your becoming your MP." And uh, I remember passing it through, and that was the I was the first person he ever spoke to in the constituency. So. Um, I think we're going to lose Rishi, which actually I think he is one of the most capable people we've had in government for a long, 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 long time. Um, he and Michael Gove. But 
But the people who've loaned us their boats, what interest have they got on it? You know, it's pre ball payback for them, isn't it? Uh, and as for the young people, anybody under 45, well, the only way you become a conservative is it's not like you hit 45 and you suddenly start reading Edmund Burke and thinking actually make some good points about the revolution in France. You become a conservative by having something to conserve. And if you don't have anything to conserve, you're not going to become a conservative. So if you are putting all your eggs in the basket of an increasingly wealthy older class and you keep weighting your politics towards them, you are not creating any more conservatives because you're not sharing society's rights and responsibilities enough to create a new generation of conservatives. I Yeah, I completely agree with your analysis and I probably agree with how um, your analysis on how the vote will go next time but a lot can happen i'll be interested to see your campaigning takes <laughs> when you've got your campaign when, you, when the real tory comes out when you put the tweed jacket on <laughs> you're stumping which around. one i've got five <laughs> when you're stomping around on the doorstep and shit gets real and and then the you know, partisan tom comes out <laughs> i'm looking forward to seeing that you know just i i would love it if we beat them kevin keegan style that's what i want to see <laughs> Your, your post being like but no it's been great having it on the podcast it's I, I knew it was going to be a great fun chat and it didn't at this point thank you so much for coming on and when you're next down in london or i'm next up in new york north yorkshire we should go for a drink i look forward to it brilliant cheers tom take care cheers leo